The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Libby. Presenting Book Two, The Hunt. The Mirage Returns. Written by Steve Libby. Read by Veronica Jaguer. So, this was different. Alex Tesla's face bore a veil of entrenched weariness. The usual animation in his strong features had ground to a halt. His lips moved of their own volition until he paused and let his downcast eyes and deep frown unite his face. Fata Morgana, director of Echo Chicago, tried to hide her concern. "'It sounds like you have your hands full down there. Let me reassure you that we haven't seen any signs of upheaval in our neck of the woods.' Tesla exhaled. "'Thank heaven for small favors, eh, Fata?' "'Every day, sir. And I put in a good word for you.' "'I'm fine. Though, come to think of it, we could use an earthly visitation from the big guy to settle everything down.' Fata winced at the blasphemy, but let it pass. "'Your giant hasn't been helpful?' "'Bill Travis?' He shook his head. Poor bastard. The city smacked us with a five-million-dollar repair bill from his last stroll alone. We trucked him back to Stone Mountain, back to his hole. This time, though, we put a small staff out there with him. Staff? Yeah, led by a psychiatrist who specializes in metahuman neuroses. If we can bring him to a reasonable level of functionality, we'll move him to a desert facility. It will be a step up for him, I think. Sure. Out of sight of the video conference screen, Fata looked at her hands. Once she could render them invisible at will. Now they were all too opaque, dark brown, and lines beginning to envelop her joints. She flexed the finger where her wedding band had resided years ago. So, how are you holding up? We're getting a handle on the situation, Tesla assured her. I mean you, sir. Oh. Tesla's gaze straight from the screen. I'm... Well, this can't last forever. Others certainly have had it worse than me. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Tesla grimaced at her. And here I thought it was my ego. Alex, you'll let me know if I can ship more metas to the branches... I have at least five I can spare. You already spared forty. Right now, Spin Doctor has been leveraging Chicago as an example of the stability Echo can bring to a metropolitan region. We can't lose that just yet. I wish we could take credit for it. Right. Right. Dr. Dusk. Fata settled back in her seat, hands crossed. Our good Dr. Dusk. What have you learned? She only sighed. The day of the invasion, Nazi troopers and their floating war machines had attacked Chicago just as they did nearly every other metropolitan center in the world. Yet, by the time fattest metahumans had reached the four points of encroachment, they found only motionless suits of armor and a single retreating war machine. The invasion had been repelled before it had begun. On the suits of armor had been slips of paper, prescriptions, courtesy of one previously unknown Dr. Dusk.
I see, Tesla said. No word? The word on the street is that there is no word. This character came out of nowhere, wiped out the troopers, and vanished without a trace. Five hundred troopers, in four groups, a mile apart. Yes, in the span of minutes. About three minutes, if we collate eyewitness accounts of a dark blur encircling the squads just prior to their incapacitation. Tesla rubbed his face. Could we be looking at a metahuman with accelerated speed? Well, that's one hypothesis. Another is a group of entities, though we can account for each separate instance, none of them overlapping. A third is that magic is the culprit. Magic. Seriously. Echo has had mages on staff in the past. None of that level of power. I know. Fata took a deep breath. Then there's my hypothesis, which you'll hate. Hit me. Sir, I am serious about this. I believe it was an angel that struck them down. Tesla straightened. Please, Thatta, let's restrict ourselves to the real world. Like Atlanta? He waved his hands dismissively. The Seraphim. A rogue meta, nothing more. That's not what I hear. In troubled times, people look to superstition, forgive me, faith, to buoy their spirits. It is not unremarkable for a metahuman to adopt an image that expresses that faith. It's fine, but it's not God. I emailed you the reports of angel sightings throughout the world that day. How can you ignore the evidence before you? I thought scientists had open minds. We do. We also have a nonsense filter. The weariness took over again. Sorry. Listen, I'll keep it in mind. Meanwhile, you give me something about Dr. Dusk. Anything. If he's an angel, well, I want proof. Fata frowned. Tesla seemed to be drifting away as he spoke. Under the burden of so much responsibility, his threshold level for interest must have risen to where it would take a nuclear blast to get his attention. After settling a few mundane matters, Fata signed off. From her office window, ten stories above the sidewalk, she could see clearly the economic clash of cultures in the fledgling neighborhood of West Loop. Bright canopies of cabby food shops lined the streets, separating modern office buildings from the razor-wire projects next door. No matter what backroom deal the city council cut with developers, West Loop continued to straddle the worlds of urban decay and renewal. The streets were grimly barren. Yuppies and crack dealers, immigrants and factory workers, all huddled behind locked doors in a neighborhood set either to blossom or crumble. Thatta wasn't sure whether Echo's headquarters tipped the balance, and, if so, to what side? Given the recent public backlash spurred by the targeted attacks, she suspected that Echo wasn't going to attract high-priced art galleries any time soon. Under the window, a hutch jutted out from the desk, bearing piles of reports, printouts, letters, photographs, all gathered into overworked file folders. Did her office chaos mirror the disorder in the rest of the world? One of the piles contained everything related to the Thule Society attack. 
With care not to upset the delicate tower of papers, she dislodged the file folders and plopped them on her desk. A slip of paper had been paperclipped to the folder, one of the prescriptions from Dr. Dusk. Diagnosis, evil. Prescription, justice. From the desk of Dr. Dusk. Jerk, she muttered. Why you gotta make extra work for me? If the Nazis had reached the Echo Building, the resulting battle would have claimed hundreds of lives and generated mounds of paperwork. But it would be understandable paperwork, answering more questions than it raised. Fata flipped through the packets of crime scene photographs, printed from digital files. She could have browsed JPEGs on the image server, saving several trees in the process. But to think, she needed to touch things. In each photo, an armored form larger than a man sprawled out on the Chicago pavement. No blood, no dents, no outward signs of damage. When they pried the helmets off the troopers, they found uniform bruises on the jawline, some on the abdomens. No more than two bruises per trooper, and autopsies indicated that the wounds were superficial at best. Ridiculous. She had seen victims of psychic overloads that showed no outward signs of injury, but an autopsy would reveal a massive disruption of the brain's chemical structure or cerebral hemorrhage. Yet there was no indication of this cause of death either. They just keeled over from justice. Once again, she paged through the file, reading the eyewitness accounts in hopes of finding one salient detail that would break open the jar on this mystery. In a movie, critics would complain that Dr. Dusk was a deus ex machina, God reaching down from the heavens to set things aright. In their eyes, it was a failure of the writer, but in the real world, Fata believed such miracles did, in fact, happen. With all the miraculous abilities of the metahumans, including those that violated known laws of physics, how improbable was it that the divine played a role? Dr. Dusk was an angel. Fata was sure of it. A strange angel, and a vengeful one, but an angel regardless. And angels weren't known to keep phone numbers, homes, or email addresses. Fata sighed in resignation, and switched to the computer to print out all of the eyewitnesses' contact information. It was a list two hundred names long, but, short of begging for divine intervention, it was her best hope. She tucked the printouts into a folder, and the prescription note as well. While she had at her disposal a dozen top-notch detectives, she decided to do the legwork herself. Her stomach rumbled, a sign that she had once again worked through lunch without noticing. The food stand down the block had a cozy booth, usually unoccupied, that would be good for spreading out to plan her itinerary. Armed with highlighters, a high-detail street map, and her folder, she trotted out of the building with a cursory warning to her secretary. Only a handful of pedestrians shared the sidewalk with her. Not for the first time. She had the fleeting impression that Echo wasn't needed in a town so empty. In the distance, young Tufts lingered on the corner where their housing project squatted, and she was reminded that Echo had the same mission as the police. Serve and protect. Whether these particular Tufts needed protection or prosecution was another matter. To live in Chicago's rough neighborhoods, one needed a thick skin and wary eye on either side of the law. The block near her chosen food stand, which specialized in the Polish sausages she loved, 
contained only one other storefront, a used bookstore chock full of discarded paperbacks, yellowing comic books, and stacks of aging magazines. Thata had no idea how the reedy proprietor stayed in business. In the window he had arranged several rows of pulp novels, each cover more lurid and crudely rendered than the next. Bottle blondes cringed from swarthy assailants, square-jawed heroes bulged out of their t-shirts, suave agents brandished sleek pistols to protect the helpless exotic beauties at their feet. The last one caught her eye. Assignment Tokyo, the title read, in a typeface considered exciting in 1967. Why did this get her attention? She had a hunch, so tissue-thin she couldn't enunciate it. After a moment of staring at the book, she entered the store, reached around the display, and snapped it up. You read this stuff? He shrugged, the sort of shrug that invalidated the statement it accompanied. When I was a kid, you know. Good. Is there a series with that same kind of title? You know, something colon something. Like Mission Impossible? Oh, sure, a ton. I guess it's corny. N not at all. Excitement welled up in her. What about prescription justice? The owner tugged at his jaw. That sounds cool. You got a copy? No, I was looking for one. Let's check. He led her to the counter, where books teetered in stacks reminiscent of her own paperwork. He tapped at a laptop keyboard. Google knows I. No series called that. Hold on. Hmm. He swiveled the computer to show her the web page, so spare as to lack graphics. There was a story with that title in an old issue of Weird Tales. Amazing what some people obsess about. The story, Prescription Justice, had appeared in a Weird Tales from 1930. The writer's name was Anton Steele, surely a pseudonym. Okay, try another, she said. Try diagnosis evil. He snorted and typed in the search terms. The same website listed the story as appearing in a 1931 issue, again by Anton Steele. Pretty obscure, he said, but I have some old weird tales. He poked through the aisles of books until he found a box containing bagged pulp magazines. With the skill of a seasoned pro, he flicked through them until his face lit up. Eureka! Here you go, ma'am. Very collectible. The magazine's cover featured a shirtless adventurer fending off a lion, but the Anton Steele story was listed in small print at the bottom. The bag had been taped shut. The price tag read $35. I'll take it, she said. Don't you want to? Fata peeled off two twenties. Keep the change. Ensconced in her booth at the food stand, Thata shook the magazine out of the bag. Bits of brittle paper came loose, but she wasn't a collector interested in preserving the past. The spine cracked as she flipped the Anton Steele story. A crude illustration accompanied the title page. A cloaked man sporting goggles and a classic headband reflector.
twin pistols fired at an unseen foe. The latest Dr. Dusk adventure pits him against a crime boss who holds the windy city in his icy grip, read the caption. Her sausage forgotten, Fata read the story five times, thanking God all the while. If this wasn't a miracle, she didn't know what was. Tesla seemed less than impressed, however. Would you like me to check eBay for an action figure? Sir, I think this is significant. The character in the story leaves the same prescription notes with his defeated opponents. Then where has he been for the last seventy years? Fata scowled at him. Don't be unkind. Sorry. You think, then, that our Dr. Dusk is imitating this pulp character? That seems likely. In the story, Dr. Dusk has no special abilities aside from a drive to do good, two fists, and a yen for hiding in shadows. Typical adolescent male power fantasy stuff. Our man may have adopted his shtick, but now with metahuman powers added. Like a Hollywood remake? Tesla tilted his head. Metahuman. So no more talk of angels. Fata flushed. No, sir. Occam's razor suggests that this explanation is the most plausible. But you're still not satisfied. Well, it just seems. We've never even seen a metaphor with this degree of power. It's off the charts. Tesla smiled. One thing I have learned in this business, Fata, is that there is always room for a new surprise. Now that we agree that our protagonist is human and of ostensibly good intent, how do we make contact with him? Fata returned his smile with her own. I believe Mr. Anton Steele has provided us an answer, sir. She held up the open magazine. Place a classified ad. Five minutes later, Tesla was off the screen, replaced by the classified section of the Chicago Reader, the weekly paper whose classified ads were the most widely read in the city. She ran through her Echo credit card and hesitated on the category. Matches? I saw you? What sort of classified ad would a 30s pulp hero read? The paper targeted young, hip city dwellers. The bulletin board seemed appropriate. It included official business notices, posted prayers to saints, and offers to participate in medical research. Yet, as she clicked through to the text field, Fata felt a sense of anachronism that she couldn't shake. Wanted. Metaphor 30s pulp doctor themed for crime fighting. Silly. SBF professional seeking pulp adventurer. Bring your prescription pad. Embarrassing and a little too personal. Fata tapped the desk and scowled. She had to think like a pulp character. Dr. Dusk, you are needed. Meet me at Getty Tomb at midnight on Thursday. Look for the white rose. Fata grimaced at the corniness of it, but one look at the illustration of Dr. Dusk and she knew she was on the right track. She confirmed the ad with a click of the left button and set back, exhaling. The paper would be out tomorrow, Thursday, in time for Chicago's nightlife to be directed to bars and clubs, and hopefully one enormously powerful metahuman to the cemetery. 
Fata adjusted her white rose, tucked into her jacket pocket. The torrid Chicago summer day had retreated to allow the night to cool the air, and a sliver of the moon challenged the stars to peek out past its glare. The distant, never-ending roar of traffic reminded her that she was firmly ensconced in the twenty-first century. It was 11.50 p.m., and other than a group of mopey black-clad teenagers, the Graceland Cemetery was empty but for her and the long-decayed corpse of Carrie Eliza Getty, at rest in the tomb built by her husband. The graves of other prominent Chicagoans surrounded her, George Pullman and Marshall Fields, among others, names she normally saw on maps or buildings. "'Waiting on a man, Mrs. Getty. Isn't that always the way?' Fata muttered. On impulse, Fata calmed her thoughts and felt around for the trigger for her metahuman ability. Ten years ago she had lost to head trauma, a bullet fragment ricocheting off a building. She had been lucky, as one heard so often from head trauma survivors, because the fragment missed critical portions of her brain by mere centimeters. A slight head shake before the gunshot, and she would have died instantly. Instead, she spent a month in the hospital, and left a normal human being again. No more invisibility, no more heart-palpitating battles in which she lurked at the fringe, unseen to friend and foe alike, waiting for the perfect opportunity for a decisive strike. She had stopped visiting the target range, stopped attending sessions at the dojo, stopped the daily workouts. Fata had settled behind a desk and focused on being the best support to her colleagues that she could be. But, just as a child explores her mouth for a missing baby tooth, Fata found herself looking for that mental trigger at least once a day. She did not long to return to violent situations. The first year off had been an enormous relief. But she felt left out of something greater than herself. The trigger evaded her, yet again. She held up a hand to the moon and saw only skin and bone. 12.05 a.m., her watch read. Fata scanned the cemetery, going so far as to make a full circuit around the Getty tomb in case Dr. Dusk lurked as much as his pulp counterpart. At a quarter after, she went home, wearied and puzzled. Sun up, Friday morning, Fata glowered at the cup of coffee in her hands. Even metahumans need caffeine, she assured herself, though she knew she had become less metahuman since her head trauma. Muscle density had reduced over time to normal human density. Her body retained fat commensurate with her age. When she had been in uniform, she had a physique to awaken jealousy in Olympic swimmers. Now she could pinch an inch and wonder whether to do anything about it. She still had her investigative skills, but days like today made her question even that. The pulp magazine had been a reward for good living. What were the odds an old magazine like that would be waiting just blocks away from her office? Yet, Dr. Dusk had ignored her ad. In the story, he had jumped to respond to a printed plea for help from a blonde floozy. Typical. The Chicago Reader issue containing her ad sat on top of the file folders, awaiting her attention to add to the file. Fata picked it up to look at her ad again. It seemed particularly ridiculous alongside the other conventional ads. Even the creepy I-saw-you ads from would-be stalkers had more legitimacy. The newspaper separated in her hand. She noticed a date under the table of contents. 
the Chicago Reader, serving Chicago since 1972. She blinked. Would Dr. Dusk read a newspaper that had no presence in his favorite decade? Fata called the Chicago Sun-Times main desk. When did your newspaper incorporate? What? The secretary sounded unhappy to receive such a question. Ask someone, when did you incorporate? Fata waited on hold until the secretary came back on the line. 1948, ma'am. Is there something else I can help you with? Fata thanked her, hung up, and dialed the Chicago Tribune to ask the same question. The answer? 1847. Perfect, Fata said. I need to place a classified ad. Let me direct you to our convenient website. No thanks. I want to do this in person. With cash. No computers this time, Fata decided. I'm going to play in the doctor's playground now. Fata returned to her office feeling antsy. She wished she could fast forward to midnight tomorrow, when Dr. Dusk would appear if her hunch was correct. Realistically, she knew her optimism was unfounded, but luck and God had been with her thus far on this case, so a little faith would not hurt. However, until the zero hour... There was work to be done. Free from the intense focus on the matter of Dr. Dusk, she saw the cluttered horror that was her office with fresh eyes. She caught Betty's eye to call her into the office. I need a hand, she told her secretary. Can you forward your calls to my desk and help me tame this mess? Your metahuman filing powers are required. You bet. Betty said with a knowing smirk. Fata began to gather up the stray contents of the many folders littering her office. She hadn't realized how out of control she had allowed it to become until she had five items that had no discernible home. She needed to become more serious about getting this stuff in databases. Betty bundled up the Dr. Dusk folder with its new additions from Fata's renewed investigation. Fata opened the next folder and in doing so disturbed the equilibrium of the pile. Several folders fell to the floor. When she picked them up, she saw the call sign Showstopper, the name of the casualty of the invasion. He was still at medical leave. Underneath, though, was another report, labeled March, Matthew, the clairvoyant autistic, dead by his own hand. She winced. March had found a way to set himself ablaze with so much heat that he burned to death in seconds, yet papers under his bed weren't even singed. After a security check of the room and the medical wing, investigators concluded the fire had something to do with his metahuman powers and closed the book. Encased in a plastic document envelope were the papers remaining from the incident. His scrawl, visible through the plastic, was so spider-like and jagged as to be the hand of a madman. Fata had spoken with him several times, though, and found him to be lucid, childlike, sweet in a distracted way. Poor bastard. Who? Fata showed Betty the file photo of March when he was alive. Black circles stood out in contrast to his pale skin. Lost him during the attack. Suicide, says forensics. He was a clairvoyant who couldn't leave his room.
docs say his clairvoyance rendered him functionally autistic. Betty frowned and shook her head. How sad. Why haven't I heard about him? Need to know basis only. I guess it doesn't matter now. She gave Betty the showstopper folder, but hesitated over Matthew March's. She undid the clasp on the document envelope holding the handwritten pages. Clairvoyant, like Nostradamus. So they claim. The only thing he ever provided us were readings on existing objects. Whether he possessed genuine precognition was a matter of debate. It seems like it would be easy to prove. You'd think so, until you realize that there was so much information going through his head that most of the predictions he offered up were impossible to prove. Minor stuff in remote locations. Thaddeus scanned March's last words again. The words overlapped each other, reversed direction, and deteriorated into indecipherable scribbles. She could only make out one word of ten. Betty looked at one of the pages at random. This page looks like the first, see? I'm going to leave. You can read that. My best friend in elementary school had worse handwriting, and she's a doctor now, go figure. Out of boredom, I taught myself to read it. Thatta gave her a stack of notes. Your new action item. How soon can you have it done? Betty held up a page to the light and tilted it 360 degrees. Ugh. Give me a few days. Done and done, Thatta said, and then realized she would have to organize her office alone. Hello again, Mrs. Getty. Thatta patted the cool concrete of the monument. This time, clouds obscured the moon, and the Getty tomb was as dark as the mausoleum should be. Thatta checked her watch, 11.45 p.m., and her sidearm, loaded, standard caseless rounds, and took a seat on a marble bench to wait for Dr. Dusk. Arranging herself to catch a beam of light from a sodium street lamp, she opened the weird tales and reread his story. Yet midnight came and went with no sign of the pulp hero. Thatta forced herself to stay seated until a quarter after midnight. It's like being stood up for a date, Mrs. Getty. Thanks for the company. Grating her teeth, she strolled out of the cemetery to her parked Echo sedan. Before starting the vehicle, she gripped the steering wheel and racked her brain for an alternate plan. Perhaps her approach had been simplistic, foolish, and naive enough to be worthy of a rookie. Go home, girl, she ordered herself. A good night's sleep would do wonders to clarify her thinking. Right now, images of streetcars, Ford Model Ts, cloaked Avengers, and scowling thugs flitted through her mind. The streets of Chicago wallowed in murky darkness in spite of the street lamps. Fata's route to her home took her through several quiet residential neighborhoods. She drove slowly, reluctant to give up her impression that she had traveled back to Dr. Dusk's time. Perhaps, somehow, her ties to the modern high-tech world of Echo were keeping him away. Yet the best she had for a time machine was an old, desiccated pulp magazine for adolescent boys. Fata turned onto her street 
and lurched to a stop. Parked by the corner was a vintage car in immaculate shape, sporting an old-fashioned Chrysler logo. Not a scratch marred the black paint. The car, however, was unoccupied. Someone on my block is an aficionado, she concluded, though she wondered the wisdom of leaving such a fragile old collectible out on the street. Her vision strayed past the Chrysler to a line of vintage cars down the street. Not a single modern car was in sight. You're tired, she said aloud. Just get home and hit the sack. Tomorrow can be a day off. Yet the vintage cars remained as solid as reality as she drove towards her condo. The numbers on the buildings had changed as well to old-style metal signs. The night had not dimmed, but the sodium streetlights were gone, to be replaced by old incandescents, the kind you saw on Lakeshore Drive. At number 3994, her home, the street-level garage was gone, replaced by the door and window of an apartment. She pulled into a space and shuddered to a stop. Her heart pounded like a jackhammer. The hallucination was far too real to simply be the result of a lack of sleep. Her uncle had been bipolar. Could this be an initial manifestation of the condition? I thank you for the ride, madam, said a mellifluous voice in the back seat. In an instant, Fata had her gun in hand and whipped around to point into the speaker's face. The man didn't flinch. Amber light glinted off his doctor's reflecting mirror, strapped jauntily to his right temple. A cloak concealed his torso. Dr. Dusk offered a smile made more eerie by his blackened goggles. I believe you wish to see me. The gun didn't waver. If you are who I think you are, yes. Then it behooves me to introduce myself. I am he who heals the wounds left on humanity by the claws of evil. I am he who calls retribution forth from the shadows. I am Dr. Dusk. Fata shook her head. Fata Morgana. That is one long-ass speech from a man with a gun on him. Guns do not intimidate me. Certainly not one so petite and ladylike as yours. She barked a laugh. Petite? This is an echo sidearm, pal. It can... Her voice trailed off as she realized the gun was, in fact, a modest derringer. Son of a gun, she breathed. Indeed. Perhaps you would consider returning it to your purse where it can await a chance to fend off ruffians or overly forward gentlemen. I am no threat to you, young lady. Dr. Dusk proffered a hand. Can we make peace and discuss your request in comfort? Fata lowered the transformed pistol and shook his hand. I suppose you startled me is all. And I do apologize for that, but I had to ensure you were not a plant for one of my enemies. Let me make a suggestion. Sure. Fata dropped the derringer in her purse, one she had not carried with her to the meeting. The purse was of retro design, surely pricey, and most certainly not hers. She opened it. Money, a notebook, lipstick, 
but no cell phone, no credit cards, no Echo ID card. Sure, she repeated. Go ahead. I would like to make amends for alarming you. May I buy you a drink? She goggled at him. Are you serious? Be assured I am not one who lets racial prejudice dictate his actions, or interests. You intrigue me, miss, but I am sure you hear such declarations from many a suitor. Will you permit me to be of service to you? His confident facade cracked for a moment, showing a curious childlike vulnerability under the gallant presentation. Fata had to admit it was charming, in a surreal way. That was the general idea, she agreed. Where to? A speakeasy I patronize. You will take comfort knowing that it is fully integrated, and the owner and I have an understanding about my particular need for privacy. He will make no complaints about my arrival with a beautiful negress on my arm. Huh. All right, then. She started up her car, unsurprised at this point to hear the roar of an antique motor in place of the electric hum of an echo broadcast tech car. The drive to Callahan's was an exercise in further surreality. The entire city had somehow reverted to its failed past, the Chicago of Al Capone prohibition and public enemy number one. As much as she had seen in a world depicted in old gangster movies, immersion in a technologically retrograde environment unsettled her. Time travel, she knew, was impossible, so whatever was happening had to be hallucinatory in nature, yet Fata had no sense of disorientation or confusion. The details of the freshly built tenements and the period outfits of pedestrians were as clear as the steering wheel in her hands. Dr. Dusk had pulled a wide-brimmed hat over his head and hunched down in the seat, effectively hidden from view, but he still emanated an aggravating aura of confidence. Fata resisted the urge to ask for an explanation. For one thing, she wanted to see what a speakeasy looked like. Initially, it looked like a back alley. Dusk had her park on the opposite block. A battered wooden fence blocked off the end of the alley. I'll help you up. Skirts are not ideal attire for climbing. Fata almost protested that she had worn a pantsuit until she looked down to see that she was in a classic skirt and blouse with heels and fishnet stockings. Even more surprising, she had somehow shed weight and years. The clothes clung to her shapely form as if she were attending a costume contest in college. She looked good. Taken on the surface, things were looking up. She let Dr. Dusk heft her up to the top of the fence. His grip didn't waver. She guessed he had at least the strength of two normal men, if not three or four. This was not uncommon among metahumans. You'll forgive me for taking you through the service entrance. It is I who must hide from prying eyes, not you. The dingy door opened to two swift knocks. An old man in an apron raised an eyebrow, then led them to a back room fitted out for private conferences. Dr. Dusk held a seat for Fata as the man brought an unlabeled bottle and poured out two glasses. The reek of cheap whiskey tickled her nose. Now then, Dr. Dusk said, leaning back in his chair, 
Shall we discuss your problem? It's funny. To a large degree, you've solved it already. Oh, bully for me. He sipped the whiskey. She leaned forward. I work for an agency called Echo. We employ metahumans such as yourself as extra-legal peacekeepers in cooperation with state and federal authorities. Needless to say, after the Thule Society attack, we have great interest in having you join our organization. Echo. I do not believe I have heard of such an organization. Is it a secret society? No. We have dozens of branches all over the world. You can't miss us. I fear I have. Now tell me, what is a metahuman? Why, you, of course. He cocked his head. A crime fighter. Hopefully. A metahuman is anyone possessed of extraordinary powers which violate the known laws of physics. I am guessing that your own powers include the ability to make all of this, she gestured at the confines of the room, seem real. Why did you choose the thirties as a theme? A theme? One doesn't choose his birth date. Organized crime is on the rise in these troubled times, enough so that concerned citizens with, let us say, resources, feel impelled to lend their hands to the cause of law and order. It is not so extraordinary if you consider the sacrifices past notables have made. No, no, this! Fata stood and indicated her transformed clothes and body. Gangster fashion, speakeasies, the whole nine yards. It's a psychic construction, right? Dr. Dusk smiled at her. You needn't find excuses to make me notice your striking beauty, my dear. The doctor is a connoisseur of the finest things in life. But let us not be hasty in courtship. Please, sit. Enjoy your liquor. Fata shook her head angrily. Look, I am not hitting on you. I'm trying to explain. You did something to remove me from my time. And what time might that be? Dr. Dusk seemed bemused. Two thousand four. Just like you. The year of the Thule Society attack. His laugh was as cultured as his accent. Surely you jest, my delightful fata. The Thule Society did rear its ugly head not long ago. I thwarted the devious designs of their commandant. He inclined his head in humility. As any metahuman would consider his duty. You dropped five hundred heavily armored troopers and three war machines in minutes. Perhaps you work for the newspapers? You exhibit a charming talent in hyperbole. I counted no more than two dozen flunkies riding in two miniature zeppelins. Cunning, I will admit, but no grand threat to a man armed with courage and a solid right hook. If Dr. Dusk was putting on an act, it was a convincing one. Yet she knew it was impossible. Five hundred, eight feet tall, energy cannons, anti-gravity war machines, the loss of life was staggering, except in Chicago. And now you're telling me there were only two dozen. She dropped into the chair and slammed back her drink. 
I may need another of these. He promptly replenished it. You find my account of the incident extraordinary? I have faced fiercer opponents. Some day I shall regale you with the story. Wonderful. Do they have a phone here? In true period fashion, the speakeasy had a phone booth set into the wall. The phone itself was the dialless antique variety, with a speaker horn and a conical earpiece, on a string. After a buzz, a tinny operator's voice requested her exchange in number. Uh, hmm. As an experiment, she gave Tesla's personal number. A weighty silence settled on the line. I'm sorry, ma'am. No such number exists. Do you know your exchange? No idea. That number didn't work. You need an exchange, sweetheart. The operator spoke more slowly, with a maternal own. The operator spoke more slowly, with a maternal tone that rankled Fata. Where's that line located? Atlanta. Ma'am, I can't place that call without an exchange. Christ Almighty, it's Echo Atlanta. Can't you look it up? Sorry, ma'am. I'm not familiar with that, ma'am. The operator paused. Let me try something. Static hissed for a moment, then triumphantly. Atlanta South 59379. Connecting. The line rang several times until a voice rough with sleep answered. Yes? Mr. Tesla, thank God in heaven. It's Fata. Fata? What's, what's wrong? Do I need to send a team? Not sure, sir. I... I found Dr. Dusk. Or more like he found me. Tesla perked up. Really? Well, my God, bring him in. I'm afraid it's not that easy. He's a metaphor, all right. Maybe a five, if such a thing exists. Either I'm calling you from 1930, or reality reinvents itself to suit his whim. Explain, please. Fata encapsulated the night's events. We've had illusionists on file before, sir, but this guy takes it to the next level. What's more, I think he believes it. How so? He called me a negress. Actually, he was flirting with me at the time. That's pretty strange. The archaic language, I mean. Tesla cleared his throat. Are you confident that he's non-hostile? My assessment is that he believes himself to be the same pulp hero in the old magazine, so I would be willing to bet that he's at least sympathetic to our goals. However, he may be too independent to outright join the organization. Besides, she added, in his world we don't exist. Hmm. I wonder how to play this. A metaphor can't be ignored. From what we've seen, he's virtually unbeatable. All I've seen tonight is a bottle of whiskey and fancy talk. Fata. Oh, no, sir, I am not going to sleep with him to get him on the team. Whoa, whoa, I wasn't going to suggest that. Just befriend him. Let him flirt if it fits his delusion, but gain his confidence. 
We'll need his trust for the next phase of the operation. What next phase? Tesla said nothing. Don't play games with me, Alex. I am a goddamned, excuse me, branch director, not some echo support ops flunky. Should we be having this conversation while you're in his realm? He's not omnipotent, nor is he peering over my shoulder. She leaned out and saw a busty blonde woman sitting in her seat. In fact, he's already distracted by another pretty face. Tell me what you're thinking. I'm thinking a metaphor either needs to be accountable or terminated. I'm sorry to be so drastic about it, but these days we can take no chances. You want me to assassinate him. He transformed my sidearm into a lady's one-shot. For all I know, the bullet would turn into a jelly bean. That's your absolute last resort if everything goes foobar. Your priority is to make him a friendly. And keep me updated. You're on a long-distance call, you know. I'm on Speakeasy's dime. Good lord. Well, don't hesitate to call collect. And please be careful. I can't send a support team to 1930.